Good morning, Renewal. Pleasure to be with you again this morning. Uh, please keep your Bibles open uh, to this passage. We'll be referring uh, to it throughout our time. Before we begin, uh, let me pray for us as we seek God's help to spread his word this morning. Let's ask for his help. Uh, God, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and to enlighten our minds. Uh, we do know that these words are the words of life. These are your words, and we believe that there is power in them because they're coming from you. So we do pray, Lord, that wherever we are at, whatever our weeks might have been like, whatever the condition of our hearts, help us to see that your words give life, hope, security, and even intimacy with our Father in heaven. We pray for your help. In Christ's name we pray. Well, Romans chapter 8 is uh, traditionally called the chapter of the Holy Spirit. The chapter of the Holy Spirit. And it's because Paul here, uh, he characteristically describes uh, what Christian life is lived by the Holy Spirit. So if you look in chapter 8 with me, just follow along. Look at what I'm trying to point out here in verse 2. It's the Holy Spirit that sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 6, if we set our minds on the Spirit, there is life and peace. Verse 7, it is those who live by the Spirit who, who please God in our obedience. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 11, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us our future resurrected bodies. Last week we saw in verse 13, how do we put to death the deeds of the body? It is by the Spirit. And even here in our uh, passage, Paul is continuing this discussion on the Holy Spirit in the context of sanctification. We're still on sanctification. So if we look at what we studied last time, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, there is life and peace. You will live. Now con continue that line of thought in verse 14 where he says, the ones who put to death the deeds of the body, the ones who, who kill sin, those are the ones who are being led by the Spirit in verse 14. And those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And so what Paul is saying, he's presenting how, how the sanctification works, of how on one hand, we are active. We are actively putting to death the deeds of the body. We see that even in the grammar of verse 13. We put to death the deeds of the body. But at the same time in verse 14, and this is where how rich uh, this, uh, this doctrine is, in verse 14, ultimately speaking, deep down inside, it is not you who are killing sin, but it is the Holy Spirit. Because we are being led by the Spirit at the same time. You can see there's an active verb in verse 13, put to death the deeds of the body. And the passive verb in verse 14, we are led by the Spirit. But those two things, 100% us and 100% the Holy Spirit, those two things must be working concurrently for this sanctification to take place. 
And it's amazing when you think about what's going on in the Christian life. When you are frustrated with your sins, when, you are, when you're wanting to grow deeper in Christ, and perhaps you do make changes in your life, you wake up a little earlier, you, you pray for those around you, and you serve the Lord in various ways, that reminds us, this reminds us, that deep down inside, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit. Your desires to wake up this morning, to come to church, and to feast upon God's word, what we see here in our flesh, we don't have those desires, but it is the Holy Spirit giving you this desire to wake up, to worship the Lord on this Sabbath day, and for whatever spiritual endeavor you might take upon, it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who is leading you. And that should give us this sense of assurance, gives us this peace, that all of these things that you see evidence in yourself to, to be frustrated with sin, to want to grow deeper with God, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. For those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, and at the same time, as Paul says in Colossians 1, for this I toil, I struggle with all of my energy, all of God's energy, that he works powerfully in me. It's a both and reality for the Christian in our sanctification. So we are actively at work, and it's ultimately the Holy Spirit leading us in this work of sanctification. That's what being led by the Spirit means. For all of your desires and your motivations to realize that's coming from God himself to want to grow closer to him, to want to know him, to defeat the sins of your life. And where all the faculties of your mind, all your whole life is surrounded on this idea that, that you are to love God, you are to spend time with him, that he is your creator. That's what being led by the Spirit means. A lot of us, we think being led by the Spirit means is, is asking God to make certain decisions, asking God, uh, do I do this or do I do that? Should I take this job or should I go to this school or study this major? And that's not what this means here. Being led by the Spirit is when your whole being Something deep down inside of you, that when you do disobey God, there's something not right. When you do neglect God and his people, that time on a Sunday morning when, when you do skip church perhaps, there's something inside of you, right? This isn't right. Or when you do act unjustly, and when you do act in sin, something inside of you says, that's not what God wants. That's what being led by the Spirit means. It means for, for God to be our all-encompassing drive, our motivation, the power to be sanctified in the likeness of Christ. He's the one personally leading us. A lot of times we have this tendency to think that the Holy Spirit is this, this inanimate object, some kind of mystical or, or magical force that God sends down from heaven to us. And I'm guilty of thinking like that as well. When we think the Holy Spirit is, is this instrument that we can primarily use and, and utilize and call upon. And while the Bible does encourage us to call upon God's Spirit, 
we must be reminded, as one pastor puts it, the Holy Spirit is not an instrument in our hands, but we are an instrument in His hands. We are not leading Him. He is leading us. He's not a mere responder to us. We are being moved and led by Him. And so when we do forego and forsake some of these things that are leading us to sin, what we're doing is we're allowing the Holy Spirit in His person to lead our lives. You know, when I do wake up in the morning sometimes and there is this even a little bit of a desire that I should open God's word, at those times we have to stop and realize God graciously gave me that desire this morning. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit, to give all credit to Him. Even you, as you sit here in this morning, even you, even if you have this little this desire to sing these praises, Holy Spirit working in you, not of us, not of the flesh. There's much to be thankful for as we are being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we are sanctified in this way, Paul, he makes this new introduction saying that those who are led by the Spirit, those who do have this, this working of the Spirit inside of them, they are the ones who are the sons of God, who have received the, the Spirit of adoption in verse 15, and they are the sons of God. And that's what we're going to be studying this morning, this doctrine of adoption. And I know we say it every week, but this is the most, the richest passage of this chapter of Romans. It keeps going deeper and deeper. But again, this doctrine of adoption, it's very rich. Very rich. Now, so far, we studied justification, aspects of sin and sanctification. And, but here in adoption, J.I. Packer, he calls adoption the highest blessing of the gospel because it involves this rich relationship. In the past, we said that justification is not simply a pardoning of your sins. If you remember the phrase, it's not simply you may go, but you may come. Well, if that's justification, you know what adoption is? Adoption is not only you may come, but jump into my arms. Feel my love for you. Touch my embrace. That's what adoption is. Do you see how rich it is? It's not only giving you access to God, but diving into his love for you. That's how rich this adoption is. Packer says it is closeness, it is affection, generosity. That's what's at the heart of adoption. To be right with God as judge in justification, that's a beautiful thing. But to be loved and cared by God, your Father, blows you away. Hence, he says, adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. Now, there's a lot that we can't go into, but I just want to go over two things this morning that comes from our adoption. The first thing is our intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. And the second thing, our inheritance that comes from this adoption. And finally, I'm just going to go over a couple of implications from that. But two things, intimacy and inheritance. So going with intimacy. Uh, to discuss this topic of intimacy, first I want to establish something. I think that in the course of one's life, and track with me here, I think there's two major realizations 
that are going to eventually happen with every single person. Two realizations. It can happen at various points in one's life, but there are these two important questions that you're going to be faced with. And how you answer those questions, they're going to have life-changing, eternal consequences. The first realization is that every one of us, we have this deep longing, deep in the recesses of our souls. We have a deep desire inside of us. And some people call it this, this desire for, for transcendence. And some turn to mysticism or, or some spiritual activity with a lowercase s. And others call it a, uh, this desire for this sense of fulfillment, a fulfillment that can be achieved by, by living a certain kind of life for yourself or, or a romantic relationship, some kind of hobby, perhaps, like golf, traveling, whatever it may be. But they all share this common realization that we do have something inside of us, something that sets us apart from the animal, that wants this deep longing satisfied. And the second realization is, how am I going to satisfy that longing? How am I going to go about in fulfilling this longing that I recognize inside of me? Now, this requires tremendous honesty to be able to say this. To be able to say that there is something deep inside of you that you're wanting, that you're longing for. It takes even more honesty to say that throughout your life that you have been operating on those longings, those desires, everything that you do. And it takes the most honesty to admit a lot of the things that we do, a lot of the things that we take upon ourselves, that we think that they're fulfilling this deep longing, but they're not. It does require a lot of honesty. There's a story of a father and a son, and they go golfing every Sunday afternoon. And they've been doing this every week. And if you know a little bit about golf, you know that it's probably one of the most frustrating sports uh, there is. And that was the case for this father and son. They would hit balls in the bunker, lose all these golf balls. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, the son, who's a teenager at this point, he asks his dad, he goes, Dad, uh, why do we go golfing again? And the father answered, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just something that we do. <laughs> There's a hint of honesty there. We don't know why we do, do some of the things that we do. Because when we're honest with ourselves, ourselves, we know they don't really provide that longing, that satisfaction that we're wanting. And you know how we know that's true? Because we go back to the same thing time and time again. Golf is lighthearted, but the seriousness of certain other things, such as pornography, things that we should be, shouldn't be doing. We go to them time and time again, thinking they satisfy, but they don't. But at the very least, you have to be honest with yourself, saying that there's something deep down inside of you that you're trying to fulfill, right? But the Bible, it gives us an account of what this longing is. It tells us that you and I, we're created in the image of God, and that doesn't just mean that we resemble God, but it also means that He, God, He is your source of joy, your happiness, and intimacy, not in just some general way, but every day, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and so forth, in our daily lives. You, know, you might have picked up on this, but if you remember that Genesis account with Adam and Eve. How is God portrayed 
in those chapters. He's portrayed in a way that's very different from the rest of the Bible, isn't he? He's audibly speaking to Adam and Eve with his voice. He dwells with them. He walks with them. There is complete access to God that Adam and Eve has. And all of their sad, their longings are being met by their maker. But it's when sin enters into the world, what happens? How is God portrayed after that? It's very rare for God to be physically walking with his people. It's very rare for God to directly speak to all of Israel. It happens sometimes. The closest we have is when God speaks to Moses. If you remember in Exodus 33, Moses makes this bold request. God, I want this longing fulfilled. This deep desire that I have, I want it to be fulfilled. I want to see you face to face. He makes that bold request. And you know what God says? He says, Moses, if you see me face to face, that you would be utterly destroyed because of this sin. But God, in his goodness, he still, in some, some fashion, grants him his request. He puts Moses underneath a cleft of a rock. That's one separation. He covers Moses with his hand, second separation. And he turns his back to Moses as he walks by him, third separation. And he grants him that. And you know how glorious, how majestic that was that when Moses came down from the mountain, that his face was glowing so much that the people of Israel had to cover his face up. When we read passages like that, of having this experience with God, there's a part of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we want that. We want that. Why? Because God made us for that in his image. And for those who are honest, they will say that they desperately need and want that, and they will desperately do whatever it takes to achieve that. That's why we work the 50 hours, trying to get that sense of accomplishment and fulfillment. That's why we travel from one best thing to the next, hoping to see that some kind of discovery, some kind of experience will connect a cord with that inside of us. That's what Moses is wanting. God, I want to see you face to face. And if we're honest, that's what we want. But the problem is, because of this sin, that all access is destroyed. We don't have access to God. And that's why you see, ever since that Genesis account, throughout all the Old Testament, God rarely walks with his people, let alone speaks to them directly. But then in John, the Gospel of John, we see that God tabernacles with his people, walks with them, speaks to them, touches them in Jesus Christ. Do you see how this access to God is now reestablished in the person of Jesus Christ? And for those who put their faith in Jesus, no longer do you see God as just the holy, righteous, mighty God. But how do you see God? You see God as Abba, Father. Abba, Father. 
And that's what Paul's saying in verse 15. No longer do you see God as simply a holy, righteous God, even though he is. But the way that Christians, the way that you and I see God is one where we see him as our father. And that was unheard of back then. It's unheard of in many countries now. To call the God of the universe, Abba, Father. A commentator writes, Abba is not used in Jewish prayers. They're not used to address God. To a Jewish mind, it would have been irreverent. It was something new. It was unique. It was unheard of to speak with God as a child speaks with his father in a way that's simple and intimate and secure. It's the Aramaic word for father, Abba. But the best that our English can do to translate that word is, is daddy. It's not just father because you know, most children don't refer to their fathers as fathers, right? How awkward would it be as father, I did all my chores today. It's time for dinner. It's missing, right? But it's daddy. Papa. Abba. Abba, Baba, that intimacy that Paul is describing here, that's the kind of relationship that we have with God. Not just the theological, not just this doctrinal or this God that we know intellectually, but one who we know deeply personal. Have you ever called God Father or Daddy or Papa? Now here's what's amazing. If ever in your life you saw God as father, as your father, as your daddy, you know what Paul's saying? That's the Holy Spirit in you who's calling him father, daddy, papa. And a lot of people ask me, Pastor Luke, sometimes I'm scared because I don't know if I'm truly saved. I don't know if I'm truly a son of God. And I ask this question, have you ever seen your dad not just as this mighty God, but as your father? Because you know it's not you who's doing that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The devil knows God intellectually, theologically, doctrinally knows him very well, and he even, he can affirm many things about God, but he can never call God his father. His minions can never cry out, Abba, Father, but for Christians, for those who have the Holy Spirit being led by him, not only are they led to fight sin, to struggle, but they are led to call God as their daddy. And that is this longing, that deep satisfaction that this world cannot provide. That is us finding that satisfaction in being intimately known and loved by our maker. It's the intimacy that Jesus had with God for all eternity. The other place we see that phrase, Abba, Father, is when Jesus is praying in the garden. Before he goes to the cross, he says, Abba, Father, take this cross if it's your will. Meaning that the richness of the relationship that Jesus has with God for all eternity, that Trinitarian perfected dance, that great relationship that's ours in Christ. 
And when you put your faith in Jesus, is it in his death and resurrection? Every day we have that Jesus-like access to God, and the Holy Spirit affirms that access in us when you do struggle and when you are frustrated perhaps with sin, perhaps with this world, and when you do cry out in our hearts, God, Father, Daddy, and nothing's blocking your way. You have full access. You don't have to pity yourself up. You don't have to change yourself. You don't have to make yourself presentable. But at any given time, in any given circumstance, you have access to God to call him not only God holy and righteous, but God as Father. One of the religions that I come across overseas is uh, what we call animism. And it's this belief that in nature there are these spirits that are alive and the way that you appease these spirits will affect how good your life gets. And one of the ways that animism uh, connects with the spiritual world is uh, they write their prayers on this parchment paper. You have to buy this parchment paper or you have to uh, prepare it specially. And after you write your prayers, you have to write it in big letters because you want them to be seen by these spirits. And then you put them on this ancient tree oftentimes the oldest tree in the village. But when you plaster your prayers on that tree, you have to make sure that it stands out because there's a lot of other parchment prayers on there because you want to make sure that it stands out, it catches the Spirit's attention. Not only that, you have to accompany it with candles, with various foods, and you have to light these incense, hoping that the smell will catch the attention of the spirits. You have to do a lot. You have to do a lot for the hope of a prayer to be heard. We have direct access. Any given time, any given circumstance, Abba, Father. Not only in those cultures, but even in our culture today, we do so many things so many accomplishments, so many desires to, to, to complete this accolade or this success, to have our family in a certain way or to have a certain kind of career, to have these longings satisfied in order for God to notice. What's our parchment paper? The things that we think in our mind is going to give us this access to God, give us this fulfillment. But with the Holy Spirit... You don't need any of that. Why? Because he's not a God who's far away, but he's a God who's tabernacled, who dwells within you out of all the places, not in some ancient tree, but weak people like you and I. And he's intimately close. And Pastor Tim Keller, he says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m., for a glass of water is his child. And we have that kind of access. And in our adoption, that is brought upon by the Holy Spirit. An access that is personal and intimate. And so when you put your faith in this gospel, there's more to justification. Yes, you are pardoned. Yes, you may come. But you have this deep, personal access to your father. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, think about it like this. There's a five-year-old son and a father, he, he swoops him up in his arms and he whirls him around. And at any given point, he's still his son, right? 
That's his justification. Nothing changes who he is. But in that moment, he feels it. He feels that embrace to be able to know that even when you whisper, Abba, Father, that he's listening, that he's pleased with you. And that's what adoption is when we feel God intimately. That's the intimacy that the Holy Spirit gives us. Second, the inheritance from adoption, inheritance. Now, when we talk about inheritance, we have to consider that, that one of the, the, the benefits that we get instantaneously when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only do you receive the love and affection of our Father, but you are also in line to receive his inheritance. No less than the son who is a son by birth. That's what adoption means. In the first century uh, Roman world, there will be times where parents, where fathers would adopt these children. And when they do, they are in the same status. They have the same status as their naturally born children. No, no way inferior than their son by birth. And so that's the idea behind verse 17. He writes that if by the Spirit we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In our adoption, there is something waiting for you as his child. We call it this inheritance. And we talk about inheritance a lot. So I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about what this inheritance actually means. And I just want to point out a couple of things. The first thing that we have to know about inheritance, it means the world. It means the universe. In Romans chapter 4, in our book of Romans, Paul writes that with Abraham and to his offspring, that he will deliver his promise to his offspring, to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. The promise is, and he writes, that they will be the heir of the world, the one who did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Elsewhere, it says that Christ is described as the heir of all things. And so if we are co-heirs with Christ, that means the whole world is ours. Now, our minds can't wrap around what that means to be in possession of all things, the entire world. But here's how we can think about it. It means that because everything is in our possession, regardless of what those things are specifically, it means that you will no longer be in need, no longer in want. That's the logic here. If you already have everything that this world is, then you're in a state where you have no more needs, no more wants, no more longings. Why would you want anything more? You already have everything in Christ. That's an amazing thought. To be in a state where you are no longer in need, no longer wanting to be fully satisfied, broken relationships, the hardships of work, the dissatisfaction of life, all of these things, no more. The whole world is yours. A philosopher once said that the, every action of man is driven by desire to obtain something. Everything that anyone does is driven by desire to obtain something. Now, can you imagine a point in time where there is nothing that you need to obtain? 
That's called heaven. Everything that you and I do, everything that we see in this world, for those who spend those countless hours in front of a screen, for those who live from one experience to the next, they're doing that because they're trying to obtain something. But the Bible says that there will be a time in Christ where no longer you're trying to obtain anything because you already have everything. I don't know what that's like. Very curious. To be in a state where you are no longer in need? You know, when we act in anger, when we sharply snap at our spouse or our kids, it's because we're wanting our self-righteousness. Imagine a time and place where you don't need to do that anymore. When you need to defend yourself because you're wanting your reputation. You're wanting to be right. Imagine a place and state of time where you don't need that anymore. We can go on and on. We're going to inherit the whole world. Not only is the whole world given to us, but Paul says that we're going to have these resurrected bodies to be able to actually fully enjoy everything. He says, perfected in glory, to be able to fully enjoy and savor all that the Lord has prepared for us. It's one thing to have everything, but the second piece of that puzzle is you need to have the faculty to fully enjoy it, right? You know, recently, you know I've been to Tuscany, and if you know anything about Tuscany, it's a, it's a land of wine. Everywhere you go, people trying to get you to taste their wine. And every time I would refuse, and the Italians would be very confused because I did not know the Italian word for Asian glow. I cannot drink more than one cup of wine. Do you know how frustrating it was to be in this, the most beautiful vineyard of all the world but not have the faculty to experience and enjoy the fullest of its wine? Paul's saying you get both the vineyard and the ability to enjoy it. That's what we get. Right now, we can't comprehend because we have this spiritual Asian glow. But when we do get this inheritance, not only do we get all things in Christ, we have the faculty, the perfection of our bodies to fully enjoy. That's what adoption brings. And ultimately, God gives himself to us. We can't receive God yet, but we will. Can't imagine what that's going to be like. So then, how is this inheritance secured for us? Typically, typically, the way that inheritance works is that an inheritance is bestowed upon you upon certain conditions, right? You have to be born into a certain family based upon your pedigree. And when those conditions are met, then you qualify for that inheritance. But you see, that's not how adoption works. It's not based upon who you're born into. In fact, it's in spite of the family that you're born into. Because you're brought into a family whom you had no connection with whatsoever. It's not based upon what you're going to bring to the family, no obligations attached, but solely upon the free will of the Father who wishes to commit himself to you. You know, recently, my friend showed me uh, some photos and this friend of mine, he recently adopted a child with special needs. 
and this child is from overseas, and in a lot of these countries, uh, when you have a special needs child, the sad reality is a lot of them are abandoned. So he and his wife felt convicted uh, to adopt uh, this one child, and out of this experience, uh, they both decided to start up a ministry uh, where they would connect people from various places of the world to connect them with these children and adopt them. And he was showing me uh, some pictures recently, and it was powerful. I just want to show you a few of them, and I want to see if you pick up on something here. That's uh, right before they're introduced to their new children. Next. That's them getting to know them for the first time. First time holding on, holding on to their new children. Next. Doing the final paperwork to uh, finalize all things. Now, when I saw those pictures, I mean, it was powerful. But you know one thing that I noticed? It was that all the parents, they were ethnically different from all these children. And when I think about it, it tells me that there's nothing, nothing in this world that would have connected these two people together. Nothing, no ethnic connection. They're thousands of miles away. The only thing that was required for this adoption to take place was the decision of the parent to claim this child as their own. Did that child have any idea that God was preparing a father and a mother somewhere on the other side of the world to claim them as their own? No. But is their adoption secure? Yes. In themselves? No. In the parents? Yes. That's why adoption is powerful. Because I can't think of anything else that gets at the heart of this gospel message where God, who, are, who is thousands of miles away from you, who have no reason to be connected to you whatsoever, but for some reason, he made the decision to say, you are mine. That's what adoption is. And that's what Ephesians 1 tells us, where before God even created the world, in love, he predestined us for adoption as his children. Meaning, before this world was even created, God said, that person, he's mine. It means that our inheritance, our adoption is secure. Secure in God. Before you were even created, God adopted you before you even had the opportunity to mess up, before you had even the opportunity to please God. None of that matters. God made his claim on you before the foundation of the world. That's what adoption is. That means this inheritance that we're talking about, it was secure for us before we even knew who God was, before we even knew what adoption meant. And that means that everything that we do from here on out is not a desire to want to get this satisfaction fulfilled because God already gave that to us. He already prepared that for us. It's not based upon anything flimsy such as our spiritual lives or based upon what we do, but it is eternally secure. God made that commitment. 
before the foundation of the world and say, I want you to be my son, to be my daughter. There was no tie, nothing that persuaded God, but it was simply out of, as Ephesians says, according to his goodwill. It's a scary thought to know that you're going to be adopted not based upon anything you do, because it's out of your hands. But after you get past that, it's very assuring. It's very assuring. For God to say, if I placed you in my hands, what makes you think you could get out of it? If he placed you in his hands, that means you're going to be in his hands. God is unchanging, amen. I just want to end with a few implications from this adoption. And I get this straight from our passage. Paul says that in our adoption, that now we are obedient, not out of slavish fear. We obey God, not out of slavish fear. Without adoption, the only other way to live is to live the way that Paul calls the spirit of bondage, constantly living in fear and anxiety. If there is someone out there who loves you, unconditionally, someone who loves you, who you really are inside, to be vulnerable, to be completely open to someone and to know that all of you, he accepts and loves you. But the spirit of adoption ensures that we no longer have to live in that fear, no longer serving God out of fear as if he's our master only, but as our Father, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into that kind of living. So the first implication we see in our adoption is that when you do obey God, when you do have your allegiance to God, it is very personally motivated. It is personally motivated, meaning you're wanting to please your Father in heaven, not to earn his love, but to express the gratitude for this adoption that he has stamped in your life. Now, I want to be careful because this can be very tricky. This can be very tricky because you can have two people. You can have two people doing the same exact things on the outside, serving the church, being a good father, leading his children to church and to the ways of God, serving others, praying, reading scripture, they can be doing the same things but be completely motivated by something very different. That's what it means to please God the Father. It means that when you do certain things for God, you're not doing it for yourself. For example, when you do read that scripture, you're not thinking, okay, I want to read and finish this Bible plan because I know it's good for me. I want to do this because I should be doing it or because I'm a Christian. That's not what's motivating you. What's motivating you is that when you do crack open that word, that your Father in heaven is pleased that you're wanting to get to know him. Do you see the difference? It's right here that when you're praying for people, when you're praying for those who are hard to pray for, you're not simply doing it because that's what the Bible teaches. You're doing it because when you do get on your knees and pray for your enemies, your father is happy. When you do obey God's word, 
You don't see God as this strict master who's saying, you have to do this. But you see God as your father saying, God, this is for you. When you lapse into sin, are you more frustrated with yourself and the fact that you keep messing up again? Or are you more concerned with the fact that it breaks God's heart? That's the difference. When you do read scripture, is it to gain theology, to gain these doctrinal truths, or is it to read what God has for you personally? And when you pray, is it a means of just dumping and and pouring out all of your requests and needs to God, or is it a time when you're communing with him, sometimes in silence, enjoying his presence, perhaps even praying and just praising him for who he is? It looks the same on the outside, but motivated by something very different if you see God, not as a master, but as a father. That's the first implication. Second implication, Paul says that if you are his children, you're going to be made in the likeness of his true son, Jesus Christ. And that means you will be glorified, but in order to be glorified, you will also undergo suffering. Verse 17. If you're genuine children of God, that there will be this suffering in order that we may be glorified with him. Uh, Pastor Dave is actually going to preach on this next week, so I don't want to do too much on this, but I do want to make one point here. And here's the challenge for all of us. As God's children, when you encounter suffering, when you do come across those difficult co-workers, or those difficult children, or things of this world that's just very difficult, and it brings about this suffering, here's how we are to think. We are not to think, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening to me? This stinks. That's not it. But rather, there it is. There's my proof. There's my proof that I'm his child. Can you think like that? Every time you encounter some kind of suffering, that's your God-given receipt saying that he purchased you with the blood of Christ. If you can get in the mindset of thinking like that, who can be against us? It is for discipline that you have to endure For God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But as you endure, he promises, he promises a peaceful fruit of righteousness. He promises it. Hebrews 12. May we look at suffering as that. Proof of our adoption. And finally, We have assurance through the Holy Spirit's witness. We have assurance. This is the last implication. Is that time after time, as God's children, the Holy Spirit in us, he will testify with our spirit that you are God's beloved child. That's verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
as his children, there are going to be times when you're straining forward with all of your strength to cling on to his word, to cling on to his promises, to do aptat as best as you can, and you're crying out in prayer as you're trying to establish these things in your life. And it's hard. And in those hard moments, there will be times when the Holy Spirit in the deep recesses of your soul will affirm, will assure you that you are his. Long for those. Cherish those. The way that I can explain this best is, I remember one of the most difficult days I had of ministry. And I remember clearly because it was very difficult, and it was when I was overseas. And it probably was around the first or, or second month in this foreign country. I still haven't gotten the language yet. It was a particularly long day, um, spending three hours in the morning uh, doing intensive language training, uh, grabbing a quick lunch. Oftentimes, I would get sick from that lunch. And then I would go to this school where I would teach uh, these little uh, Chinese children who did not know English and they could not understand why I could not speak Chinese because I looked Asian but I would try to teach them things of scripture so I would do that for eight hours after that I would go to the church and be involved in various activities and the one thing that I would look forward to on those days was dinner was dinner and in this time the first or second month I didn't know much of the language so the only thing that I could order was mangoes because in Chinese, mango is mango. So it's very easy to order. So I would go to this fruit stand and I would order two mangoes. I'll put them in my scooter, my 350cc scooter, and I'll try to drive home and avoid the other cars and bikes that are coming my way, this winding road. And as I was trying to dodge this one scooter, I hit this bump. And in front of my eyes, I see one of my mangoes fly up in the air, go behind me, and smash to the ground. And I just remember that day, just going home and just diving into my pillow, asking, God, what am I doing here? I can't even eat dinner. And God, I just wanted two mangoes, just two. Couldn't give me that. And I just remember wallowing for minutes on end. And at the end of it, at the end of it, I can remember deep inside my heart, I felt God saying, Luke, you're exactly where I want you to be. There will be times when it's hard, when you're in the lowest of your times. And I encourage you to open your ears, cry out, Father, what am I doing? What is going on? And listen for the Holy Spirit to bear witness with you and say, you're exactly where I want you to be in his presence. That's adoption. Let's pray.